Have you ever wondered what it looks like for a local church to be committed to living and ministering biblically? We invite you to consider joining us for a Nine Marks Weekender. For more information, visit www.ninemarks.org. Hi, I'm Ryan Townsend, Executive Director of Nine Marks. Our vision is simple, churches that reflect the character of God. In light of that, Nine Marks exists to equip church leaders with a biblical vision and practical resources for displaying God's glory to the nations through healthy churches. To that end, we pray that this Nine Marks audio message will benefit both you and your local church. Listen, learn, and join the conversation. This is Mark Dever. It is August the 2nd, 2011. I'm here in my study once again in Washington, D.C. with Kevin DeYoung and Greg Gilbert. Uh, Kevin DeYoung and Greg Gilbert have written a new book, What is the Mission of the Church?, in which they investigate what the Bible teaches about what the church is sent into the world to do. And we were talking in our last interview about this from the Old Testament, and we want to turn now and go to the Gospels and see what we learn about uh, this from Jesus' teaching. And brothers, if we can go to Luke 6, thank you for being back with us again. Oh, good, good to be back. Oh, yes. Yeah. Sad to be away. Yep. Thanks for all the plane tickets. Mark. Yep, yep. Luke chapter 6, a uh, very famous passage there, 32 and following. Uh, Jesus exhorts us to love our enemies. Um, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. What do we learn uh, about the mission of the church from that teaching? Well, I would, I would back up and first say, we see very clearly in so many passages that you know, one of the fruit of being a Christian is that you, you love your enemies, that you forgive, that you're generous. So we see what sort of people we are to be transformed by the Spirit of God who believe in Christ. Now, what does this mean for the mission of the church? I find Galatians 6.10 to be a, a helpful sort of category for a passage like this, where, where Paul tells the church there to do good to all people as you have opportunity, especially to the household of faith. And we see a few things in, in that passage which make sense of these sort of passages when we talk about the mission of the church. I just want to be clear, I'm understanding you, Kevin. Yeah. I, we'll turn to Paul's letters in okay. a minute. But you're saying that we're not going to understand the gospel well without the epistles. I would say that's true, yes. So hermeneutically, for us as Christians, and particularly as pastors, as we teach our people, we can tell our people to study Luke, but we would never have a kind of canon within a canon where we say the Gospels are it, and the other stuff are some footnotes you can look at if you want to. Yes, and that's a very important point, especially in this sort of issue, because rhetorically it can be very powerful. Well, let, I just want to, I want to do what Jesus did. Let's just look at Jesus. And why, oh, Jesus versus Paul, Jesus versus Paul. Well, we believe that the whole New Testament was inspired by the Holy Spirit. And actually, Jesus didn't write any of these books. The apostles or those in the apostolic band did. And we have biblical reason for this because in John 16, Paul talks about, or Jesus talks about, the Holy Spirit will come and will lead the apostles into all truth. Jesus himself said, there are certain things you don't see now, you don't understand now, the Holy Spirit will come and fully explain who I am, my mission, my work, my purpose, the theological ramifications. So we're very right by Jesus' own words to look to the rest of the New Testament. So mercy is important for Christians? Yes. Yes. Mercy is important for Third Avenue Baptist Church? Uh, uh, yes, it is. It is in a different way, but it, but it is important. Okay, unpack that a little bit. How, how would you preach from Luke 6 here to Third Avenue Baptist Church about what they're to be like? 
Yeah, well, I would I would uh, exhort the individuals who make up Third Avenue Baptist Church that this is what's supposed to characterize their lives. Uh, this is one of the fruits of the Christian life that ought to be evident in them because of the Holy Spirit's work in them. Uh, it would be a different discussion uh, when we're talking about the budget of Third Avenue Baptist Church because uh, I believe that, that that church has a specific golden mission that the Lord has, has given us and we want everything to be in service to that mission. Uh, so when we do mercy ministries, uh, those as a church, budgeted mm-hmm. you know, time, energy, all the rest, those mercy ministries are in service to that golden mission that the Lord has given us. Maybe this is... Let me, and let me just okay. be clear. Uh, for those who are just joining, Third Avenue Baptist Church is the church in Louisville where Greg is the pastor. Right. Uh, Kevin Young is the pastor of the University Reformed Church in East right. Lansing, Michigan. Maybe this is a helpful distinction, and maybe I'm, I'm going ahead to where you already wanted to go. We haven't actually said what we think the mission of the church is. And, and it's, is it in just loving your enemies? <laughs> No, I would say the Great Commission gives a, a good summary, or if you want two words, make disciples, but there's you a longer You say very way. clearly on your book what it isn't. In your book, page 55, you say it is simply was not Jesus' driving ambition to heal the sick and meet the needs of the poor as much as he cared for them. Yes. So here, here's one of the ways you can maybe put a fine distinction on it. Is, our, is the mission of the church to serve those in the world as disciples of Christ, or is our mission to make disciples of others as we serve them, as servants? Now you're going to say, well, is that a distinction without a difference? I don't, I don't think it is. Now, serve, that word, uh, can mean different things. It can have a Mark 10:45 sense that Jesus came, uh, the Son of Man, to serve. And how did he serve? Well, by dying for our sins. But, you know, others would use it just more broadly as you, you meet their needs. You bless them. You meet physical needs. And so often you hear, well, that's what we do. We have a blessing strategy. We serve others, and we do it in the name of Jesus Christ. I would say, no, we get that a little bit backwards. Our mission as a church is to make disciples. And yes, just like Paul says in Second Corinthians 4, we do it as servants, not of ourselves, but as, as you all for the Lord's sake. So there is an element where we are loving, we're serving, but what we're aiming for, what we're sent into the world to accomplish is to testify to Christ that we might make disciples. Well, and the question has to be, well, how do you, how do you, one of the questions is how do you distinguish between the various commands in, in scripture? And just to, you know, to ding your question asking here just a little bit, you've, you've kind of jumped into the middle of one particular book and said, well, what about this, this verse, which, which is fine. But, but in, in the book, we, we talk about how all of these gospel narratives drive forward to a particular command that the Lord gives just before he uh, ascends into heaven. And, and it's important to see where these various commands fall in the, in the narrative structure of the books in order to see how you piece them all together. So, for example, when, when we actually have Jesus sending out his disciples in Mark 6, and he says... Uh, he calls the twelve to him, sends about two by two, give him authority over evil spirits. These words and instructions, this is Mark 6, 8. Take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra tunic. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. Mm-hmm. And then... Uh, you have the account of John the Baptist beheading, and then you have Jesus feeding the 5,000. Verse 39, Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, taking the five loaves and the two fishes and looking up to heaven. He gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They ate and were all satisfied. Um, The number of men who had eaten was 5,000. Right. If I can do, I'll try to keep it brief, a minute or something, on Mark, because I've been preaching through Mark. And you see very clearly there's three things that Jesus, his ministry is marked by three things. Teaching, healing, and casting out demons. And when he sends out... Well, the, and feeding, it looks like. Yeah, and, you know, I would put that as, as part of the, the one of the, the miracles there in caring for people, physical needs. So he's he's doing those three things. And what, what happens then is so we say, well... Preaching, casting out demons, or you know, meeting physical needs—we sort of flatten it and say, "Well, that there's the mission of the church." Well, w- 
we we need to be doing those things, but we need to understand how they relate to each other, like in Mark's Gospel. So in chapter 1, you know, this is his first day, public ministry in Capernaum, and then once the sun goes down, the Sabbath is over, he, he's healing all these people into the wee hours of the morning, and then they wake up and he's gone and he's praying, and Peter looks for him. Everyone's looking for you. Come on, you can heal these people. And Jesus says, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And there are several other passages like that which well, state... This Mark 6 is one of those. Because yeah. they had done all those miracles, and then in Mark 6.30, the apostles gathered around Jesus, reported him all they had done. Then because so many people were coming and going, they didn't even have a chance to eat. And he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went by a boat. Many saw them leaving, recognized them, ran on foot from all the towns where they were ahead of them. Jesus landed, saw a large crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So, I mean, Jesus' own stated purpose of his ministry, what what his direction and aim was, was to go to the towns to preach. You don't see an example of him, I'm going to go to the town and set up a... Uh, a healing clinic, not against doctors doing Well, let's that. back it up one level. He, he wants to have mercy and compassion. Yes. Go yeah. ahead. Yes, he sees people in need, and this is where we go back to what how Tim's book is helpful, Tim Keller, that if we have the heart of Jesus... This is Tim Keller's book, Generous yes, Justice. We, too, when we see physical human need, ought to be moved with compassion. We see the Lord was moved with compassion. You know, he didn't say, you have to become a follower of mine before I help you. He's moved. They're physically hurting people. But at the same time, we see what's driving him from town to town is his aim, his mission, is to preach well, and I mean, to teach. Even here where the people have been stirred up by, I think, these healings that have gone on so that they're chasing Jesus, then in Mark 6, when he looks out on them and has compassion because they were like sheep without a shepherd, the very next sentence is there in uh, Mark 6, yeah. 34, so he began to teaching them. So, I mean, that's one of the things we want to drive home. When we say mercy ministry, I mean, that verse right there, Jesus had mercy, he taught. If you teach your people, you're engaged in mercy ministry. Yeah. That's not what we mean by the term. But biblically, teaching is part of having mercy on people. And there people. are times when Jesus will, Jesus will leave a town that he's healing in uh, before everyone in the town is healed because he wants to go to another town in order to, to preach and you need message. to see in Mark's gospel how these healings, I mean, there's a very deliberate structure, and we'll get into all of it, but how they're, they're pointing to, they're driving home Jesus' authority, Jesus' identity. identity yeah. yeah, so even you take the two blind men that he heals, and they're pointing to, I mean, I think spiritual blindness, the way Mark puts them there. You're, you're not suggesting Jesus' physical compassion is not a model for us. No, no. not suggesting that. I think it is. It is a model yeah. for us. We need it's, to understand it in the larger purpose and way in which his ministry moved forward. It's miraculous, which which should give us pause and understand that Jesus isn't it, Jesus is something different from us. You know, we can't feed five thousand people with well, yeah, five loaves and two fishes. Yeah, and certainly when he sent his disciples out, that was a, a special thing that was going on. But he does also have his teaching. Well, most famously, the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke ten. Right, where there's not a miracle per se, right? No. But and, and he even instructs the the lawyer, the questioner at the end, the expert in the law, uh, go and do likewise. Yeah, he wants his he wants his followers to to live like this, um, and it's it's really instructive, I think, anytime you're looking at, at one of these parables to see how the questioner tees up Jesus's answer. Mm-hmm. So in Luke 10, for instance, and I think the theme that you see running through all of those, you know, the tee up questions, and then Jesus's answers is that Jesus is going after particular idolatries in those people's hearts. Uh, In Luke 10 in particular, uh, it looks to me like the questioner's particular idolatry is that he's a little bit of a sophist and he's he's using that in the service of his selfishness because the question that tees it up is, you know, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says you need to love your neighbor. And his sort of sophist answer back to Jesus is, well, who is my neighbor? And that's not a sincere question because there's a phrase in the middle that says he's seeking to justify himself with that yeah. question. So Jesus is going after a particular idolatry in that in that man and saying your selfishness needs to be replaced by this extravagant kind of generosity that you see in this story. So the, the commands that this teacher in the law gives here, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, love your neighbors yourself, that Jesus affirms. It's the same thing Jesus says in Mark 12, when he's asked, what are the greatest, what's the right. greatest commandment? Mm-hmm. And he gives that as an answer. So is, is, are the great commandments more important than the great commission? 
Well, we wouldn't want to put that kind of disjunctive between the two, but I think well, they but haven't you function- kind of done that by by Greg saying it's all pointing to that Great Commission? Well, I think they function differently. I think it is telling that when Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, go therefore and love your neighbor. That That's not, wasn't go into the world now and love people. Obviously, we are in the world and we must love people. But what, what he's kicking them out the door to do is to make disciples. So that's where I, I don't think it's helpful if people say, well, my mission is, you know, the two great commandments, love God and love our neighbor. I don't, I don't think that's how we understand the word mission. It's also useful, again, to, to consider the narrative as it's, as it's flowing. By the end of the books, what you're seeing is the, uh, of the Gospels and the beginning of Acts, you're seeing the launching of the church. And Jesus is there giving, uh, Jesus is giving the marching orders to the church mm-hmm. as it's about to be constituted by the, the Holy Spirit at, at Pentecost. Earlier in the book, Jesus is, is talking about the way uh, his followers ought to be living. And he says that the two greatest commandments for, for you who would follow me are love God, love, love your neighbor. Neither of which is particularly uniquely Christian, by the way. I mean, those, are, those are commands that come down to anyone who is a human being. What, what human being on the planet is not under the command to love the Lord your God yeah. and to love your neighbor? Well, none. We're all under that Whereas command. Whereas the command in Matthew 28 is unique. It's very uniquely Christian. Yeah, you guys write in your new book on page uh, 112, if it's true that the blessings of the kingdom are finally enjoyed only by those who have come to the king in repentance and faith, then it makes perfect sense for the king to give his people as their ongoing commission to command to herald that fact. Mm-hmm. And as we've already noted, that is, of course, exactly what Jesus does. He commands his followers in his last words on earth before his ascension to tell the nations how the blessings of the kingdom can be theirs, and his followers do that. The story of the book of Acts rings with the refrain, and the word of God increased. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is what the early Christians took to be their mission. Uh, yeah. Wow, that's really good. <laughs> Was that a Greg section? <laughs> I think. I don't remember. Yeah. Uh, you, you take it as very important that Jesus uh, being sent by his heavenly Father is prior to his sending us. Mm-hmm. You say on page 53 that it, it is more central. Yeah. What, what do you mean by that? Well, to understand that the mission, you know, the Missio Dei, the mission of God is the sending of his son. But that's not the mission of the church. No, right. So the, so you don't like the way Chris Wright puts it, the mission of God is the mission of the church. I don't like That's not useful. No, I don't either. Yeah. Uh, not the way he unpacks it. Okay. But it is important to understand. Why that, does it seem so intuitively true that the mission of God would be the mission of the church? Because... Uh, it's what, a nice turn but, of phrase. But, yeah, it is, but what what God can do may be different than what we can do. Or if if his role in sending his son to save and reconcile us, uh, or to, you know, in the most cosmic sense, recreate this, this a new cosmos, oh. I think the mistake, and we certainly have a lot of respect for Chris Wright and the work that he's done, but, I mean, I would see one of the, our disagreements with his book is, uh, an understanding that whatever God is doing, then that is what we're supposed to do. When I think you see in Acts, in particular, that our role is more uniquely to testify to the mission, testify to what God has done. So if you want to put it, you know, the church's mission is maybe to testify to the mission of God and what he's doing. But to say that the mission of God is our mission, I think, is a confusion of yeah. categories. Because God's doing all sorts of things in the world, and yet... When you look at Acts, what do you see the church doing? You see every single chapter of the Word of God increasing going forward. They're bearing witness. I, I think that uh, I think that way of thinking about things, mission of God's mission of the church, makes intuitive sense because uh, there is a there is a strong theme in the Bible that what we see in God's character, we are to emulate. Be holy as I'm holy. That's right, and so it makes perfect sense that 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 kind of is the the flow of the water of our of our hearts, but. You you also have to stop, as Kevin was just saying, and ask some more particular questions. Well, it, just because God says he's going to do something, does that mean I am to do it also? Well, not always. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the slaying of the wicked at the end of time comes to mind. We should not be about that work right now. Yeah. But but clearly there are things that we are, as you say, to be balanced. Yeah, so in Philippians 2, when Paul says, have the same attitude in you that in Christ mm-hmm. Jesus, mm-hmm. Uh, John Stott uses that... Uh, then along with John twenty thirty one, yeah, to say that 
you know, Jesus came to serve. Uh, that was his mission. And therefore, he, you know, he makes the point, shouldn't that be our mission then as well as, as his right. people? Right. Well, I think then you have to define what it means by serving and in what ways Jesus did serve. You go back to Mark ten forty five. the Son of Man came to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So you have that. And... Uh, I think you're seeing a good pushback now. Sorry, John 2021, as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. Well, and that gets to what I was going to say about the incarnational ministry. Is that the right word to describe missions? And I don't think that it is. Now, if you look at Philippians 2, and by incarnational you mean we too should have a spirit of humility, we too should try to identify with the people around us as Jesus did, then, then certainly. But I think it's better to reserve incarnation language for the unique miracle that was God taking on human so flesh. The, but, but when he says that he is sending us as he has been sent. Well, the way people, the way people often talk about that is that uh, the analogy that's being drawn there is that what Jesus was sent to do, we are sent to do. I don't think that's the analogy that's being drawn there. I think, I think that analogy, in fact, fails just on... on uh, uh, the message of the angel, that, that the reason Jesus has come is to save his people from their sins. Now, we cannot possibly be sent right. to do that in the same way that, that, that Jesus did. I think the analogy that's being drawn there uh, is is the relationship right. between the sent and the sender. Jesus' relationship to his father, the sent to the sender, was a, was a certain thing that we could talk about. And our relationship to him should be analogous. This, I think that's the analogy that's being drawn, yeah, that, not do this because I did this. what Andreas Kostenberger argues yeah. very well in his published dissertation, that it, it's a spirit of complete dependence, a spirit yeah. of humility, the, the a spirit of, of your your will, not my will. I mean, that that's as the Son was sent. And you see that in the relationship in John between the Son and the Father. It's that sort of dependent, loving, oneness of relationship mm-hmm. that then we are sent in the same yeah, way. Yeah, that book is the, the missions of Jesus and the apostles in the book of John. Or, yeah, it has an insanely long title. Andreas, Andreas Kostenberger. Yeah, so if you want to think more about that, John 2021, 20, which I know has been quite influential and was quite influential in John Stott's thought. Yes. Mm-hmm. And through Stott has come to, you know, right. many of us. Yeah. If we can go to Paul, uh, where in 2 Corinthians 8, where he talks about the example of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, he says uh, in chapter 8, he's talking about uh, the generosity that the Macedonian churches have shown. And he says, for you know, verse 8, 2 Corinthians 8, 8, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Are we to follow Jesus' example there? Is he a model for us there? I think so. Yeah. Yeah, I think we we see all. I mean, all throughout chapter eight and nine, when Paul's. Kevin, I think you were going to say no, and I no, think no, no, Greg, no, you I were going to say yes. No, I was going to say yes. Okay. Did I? Say? Go ahead. No, I I, I think that it is again. You, what do people mean after they say that? Certainly, Jesus is an example for us in humbling himself in divesting himself of his privileges for the sake of others. I mean, that's just that's part of loving your neighbor as yourself, uh, dying to yourself for the sake of others. The same, same idea is when Jesus says, uh, as I have loved you, so you should love one another. You know, it, it's a, it, as I have we, been, this is if, as I have been generous with you, so you should be generous with, with I mean, another. I think Christians should lower their standard of living for the sake of the cause of the gospel and the, for the sake of their brothers and sisters in Christ. Mm-hmm. I think we need a strong exhortation to be more generous. And is that what you find in this book, What is the Gospel? What, I mean, is, the what, is, what is the mission of the church? Yeah, in Fine. certain places, sure you do. Yeah. yeah. But again, we just we, part of what we're trying to do is, is click those exhortations into the right place theologically and not just uh, not, not leave them hanging out there unconnected to the rest of of Christian theology. What about, Greg, what about the passage that Kevin cited uh, in our last interview, Galatians 6, 10? That has to be one of the most commonly cited verses in this conversation. Yeah. Uh, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Yeah. Uh, uh, that, that, again, as we've said about a lot of these passages, should mark the life of a Christian who's been affected by the grace of God and, and by the work of the Holy Spirit. So, 
You know, I mean, there are a few things that are that are a few phrases in that that are very important and worthy of, of special consideration. As we have opportunity, is a very important phrase. Uh, it, it's not Paul calling us, for example, to uh, uh, right now drop what we're doing right here and and go out and find someone to do good to with every minute of our day. That's not what he's saying. He's saying as you go through life, you know, as you have opportunity, do good to everyone. Be a be the kind of person who's reflecting the life of Jesus in your in your daily walk. Uh, the phrase, especially to those who are of the household of faith, is very important in setting our priorities for how we how we do this. Do you so, think, in any sense, that's a positive that that really defines who the all people are? The malista there, yeah. Uh, it it could be. Um, but that's I, really I know there's his object. Some, there, that's what he a, means to be talking well, about. There's a there's a good deal of debate in lexical. Uh, just looking at the Greek lexical range to the word malista, right? It's used in various ways. So I think it's very hard to to figure that out. Um, anything on the, on the passages like um, Colossians about reconciling all things to himself, that, that kind of universal hope, does that tell us anything about the mission of the church? Does that expand the mission of the well, church from otherwise being... Well, it, it's interesting the way people will often, the way people often look at that, that, or talk about that passage in Colossians is to say, look, God is about the work of reconciling the whole cosmos to himself. All things. Therefore, right. we should be about the work of reconciling the, the entire cosmos to... So again, it's getting back then, to that same... Well, and then you move to the applications of that, and that means, well, there are going to be beautiful trees in the new heavens and new earth, so we ought to make sure there are beautiful trees Some here. Beautiful trees. It, so, so it's just should work out kind of now, building... We'll be in better shape then. Build, yes, building the new heavens and new earth uh, from, from the bricks that we have right now. But it's interesting. You look carefully at that passage in Colossians... It doesn't go there. It just says that God is going to reconcile everything to Himself through, through what, Jesus. What God promises is Colossians not always 1, is not always what God commands. I mean, That's this right. Is what, a promise is not a command. Yeah, this is what God's going to do. And it's not because it's unimportant, but maybe this isn't something we're even capable That's right. of doing. I think it would be just blow their categories in a bad way yeah. for. for you know, the Israelites to have thought, or God's people in the New Testament, to have thought that this kingdom that was coming was something that they could create, something they could build, something, a new heavens and a new earth was something they could somehow usher in. And as we alluded to before, there really is a a sort of cherry picking of what this new heavens and new earth looks like. I mean, if you go to Revelation 21 and 22, you see outside of the new heavens and the new earth, you know, on the outside looking in are dogs and sorcerers and people who commit sexual immorality and they're thrown into the lake of burning fire. But nobody says, well, that's that's bringing the king. Well, that's part of when the kingdom right. comes. That's Very much of- like Sadiq, righteousness in the Old Testament yeah. includes the condemnation and destruction of idols. Right. right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's a there's an idea out there that's become fairly current and it's that it's that every command. No, I'm sorry. It's the other way around. Every promise carries with it a command. And one of the things that, that we argue against in the in the book is that that's just not the case. There are certain promises that are simply promises. Now, maybe they carry the implicit command that you're therefore to look forward to that and hope hope for it. But mm-hmm. they, they don't carry an implicit command to be about what has been promised. Well, and you go to Second Peter chapter 3. I don't know if we were going there on, on other grounds. But the command that Paul draws out from the destruction of this earth, the, the rebirth of new... Yeah, is to repent, and then how then ought you to live? You ought to be holy. That's right. Mm-hmm. James 2, uh, 12 and 13, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. How does that inform our understanding of the mission of the church? James 2, 12 and 13. I've got to get there. Hang on. Well, again, you're, does it speak to the mission of the church, not in the way we're understanding going into the world or to accomplish? Here's how it would speak to it, though. When we make disciples, this is part of, this is part of what we're telling disciples, what they have to be like. So that's important to make disciples and help them be disciples. We're not just making decisions for Christ. We're making disciples of Christ. And part of being a disciple is that you are this person of mercy and you are this person who doesn't just keep one part of the law, but you're seeking to obey all that Jesus commands. Now, our our fundamentalist and dispensationalist friends say 
that we have all gone wrong by accepting George Eldon's la- Eldon Ladd's already and not yet inaugurated eschatology. That's where all of our confusion is coming from. I, I think that can be. I don't think we've gone wrong with that. Kevin and I, Kevin and I, uh, agree largely with with Ladd's way of putting it all together there. Um, but I, I do think that that uh, understanding of the kingdom has led to a good deal of confusion. I think it's right, but I think when people sort of mess it up and don't understand it well, it's led to a lot of confusion. So would you say that there definitely is confusion because of that already and not yet language? Or are you saying, no, that's actually helpful language to reduce the confusion? No, I think it is helpful language. It's a, it's a complex topic and it needs to be carefully considered. So it doesn't, it doesn't lend itself well to, you know, just, just pithy soundbite uh, sort of things. But when you understand it, it's very helpful. Is it wrong to say that the gospel is the declaration that the kingdom of God has come? Yes, that's wrong. Because you would want to add what, Greg? What Jesus adds, therefore repent and believe. So without a call to repent and believe... You don't have a gospel. All you you have is is a declaration that something horrific is about to happen to you. The coming of the kingdom of God is is not good news to those of us who are rebels against the king. It's only good news when it's followed up by the declaration that that king is willing to give mercy if you repent and believe. Okay, is it wrong to say that the message of forgiveness of sins through the death and resurrection of Jesus is a reduction of the true gospel? That's false too, I think. Do we want to say that that's too small? No. No. There There are other things we can say about the story. But that's not a reduction or too small or too narrow. Yeah, the, the Gospels and Acts and, and the Epistles talk about the Gospel, you know, Evangelion, in, in those terms all the time. Is anyone a Christian simply because he or she is living a kingdom life? No. No, unless you understand. I mean, but can you really, can you live a kingdom life if you're not in submission to the king? Well, right, yeah, right. But, but no, just because someone is living a, a good life... Uh, does not mean that they're a Christian. Do, do non-Christians do kingdom work? No. No, I don't think so. So non-Christians who, so like Gandhi wasn't doing kingdom work. Well, I, I don't think a, I don't think a non-Christian can do kingdom work because kingdom work is work that's done in the service of and in the name of the King. If you're not doing that, uh, then you're not doing kingdom. You may be doing good work. You know, lots of people are doing wonderful, good things. And, and did those good works extend the kingdom of God? I don't think so. I, that, that's that's strange language anyway. Extending the kingdom. Yeah, even of God. King, even kingdom work, which I mean is in all of our vocabularies, probably is sort of hard yeah, to get your your mind around. I mean, the, the kingdom is this this heavenly realm breaking in here on earth. But do we expand it? Do we increase it? Do we build it? Well, it's God's rule. No. Is, yeah. Yeah. Lad has this long quote where he says that it, the kingdom doesn't grow, it doesn't expand, it's not built, we're not doing it. So the kingdom, and I talk about this in the book, the analogy of the, of sun. the sun. Yeah, I mean... It's a great image. I mean, the, the sun can break through the clouds, the sun can burn, you know, warmer or hotter. You can pray that the sun would, you know, come out today and the storms would pass over, but the sun doesn't depend on us. We're not making the sun come up. We're not changing the sun. We're not acting on the sun. The sun isn't increasing or growing. And you okay, science so, majors, maybe it is. But so are Christians called to build God's kingdom? No. No. no I would not use no, that that's, language. That's not how the New Testament talks about it. We 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 uh, quote a long paragraph right from uh, is it from Lad, where where he does a survey of all the all the verbs that appear along with the noun kingdom. What uh-huh. what does it do and what can you do to it? And, you know, you've got... Are Christians uh, called to establish God's kingdom? Yeah, I mean, just to grab a few. The, the, no. The, the kingdom can draw well, near to men. It can come to, to usher it in. No. No, that's that's They're God. called to that's receive Jesus. it. To yeah. enter are, are we called to build for the kingdom? Uh, not in the Bible. Okay, so none of the language that's popular today, you're saying, is allowed by Scripture. The Scripture doesn't use it. and I think so, it, so what are we called to do about the kingdom? Receive it. Pro- receive it and proclaim it. You herald the kingdom. The way I talk about it is we are not agents of the kingdom. I think that's a bad phrase. You're not an agent of the kingdom. You are a herald of Look the at kingdom. Look at this. I mean, receive it, and inherit it, it, possess it. Pray uh, for you its can coming. reject it. You can refuse it. You can enter it. You yeah. cannot destroy it. You look for it. You pray for its coming, but you don't bring it. Yeah. You don't build it. 
You can do things for the sake of it, but you don't act upon it. So throughout, so throughout the whole Bible, we see this theme that uh, we are alienated from God, and salvation only comes by a mediator. And so the question is, how can we be united to this yes. king who is also the mediator? That's right. Who suffered and died for us and That's rose. Right. Well, the, the, the prior question to that even is how can you be reconciled to this God whom you've offended? And, and the answer is through this king and mediator. If we can switch gears a little bit, in your last part of your book, uh, you get to some uh, pretty practical stuff. And maybe the most contentious stuff in the book. One of you, I'm guessing it's Kevin, says that uh, history teaches us. I love it when people say history teaches us something. Yeah. History teaches us that <laughs> the whole thing. it speaks univocally. <laughs> History teaches us that people who sacrifice liberty for equality end up with neither. Patrick Henry, what did you mean by that? <laughs> Where was that? Did I say Page that? 191. Yes. That History teaches like... us that people who sacrifice liberty for equality end up with neither. Are you running for Congress? Uh, yes. Is and this... then I had a reference to a K Street down there, so perhaps I am. <laughs> <laughs> History teaches people who sacrifice liberty for equality end up with neither. Uh, I mean, I think the idea is, uh, you know, we have we we have these competing ideals, and very much in um, the American ethos, liberty and equality. And if you say you're going to give up liberty, in particular, here I'm talking about how economics function and how social justice works. But Did if, you guys if, both think it was a good idea to get into economics in this book? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. Maybe we should have done less than we did. I uh, no, I mean, just, just to, to defend both of us here. <laughs> These are the kinds of questions that, that come up. And so what we're, what we're trying to do is not lay out an economic system in the book, but just give some principles. And you've, you know, you, you've got one, one – yeah, you're diving into the middle of a thing here. That's not a topic. Well, here sentence. very simply, I mean, if you're in the world and you want – Equality. You're going to give up liberty for it. Who's going to enforce the equality? Who's going to decide what is fair? Who's going to be wise enough to mete it out? Who's going to be what benevolent enough? What angels has God sent us to do this? In the form of kings, perhaps? Said yes. Thomas Jefferson? Yes. Hmm. So unless God is your king who can do it most wisely, understands everything, you are going to end up with neither. In history, uh, at least... Some recent history so, so going to Christian history, would show that. a lot of folks, when it gets to this Mission of the Church conversation, we'll talk about people like John Calvin or Jonathan Edwards, great pastors who've cared for the poor well. What are we to think about their examples? Follow their examples, oh. but also realize that, uh, I mean, you have a, a sort of Christendom understanding, or at least in Geneva or Northampton, where you know, everyone in the town is going to be baptized member of this church. So we talk about caring for the needs of the whole city. There isn't a distinction between church and city like we would have today. Uh, and it's sort of ironic that some of the same voices who want to really, you know, they just, mm, Constantine, bad, oh, Christendom, bad. And yet their sort of mission for the church is, could you recreate Christendom? Could, could we have something mm. like that again? Greg, I know you have a great love for Connecticut. And uh, Connecticut has been important in this story. The example of Litchfield, Connecticut Congregational Minister Lyman Beecher. Uh, one historian writes, Beecher's fame as a preacher spread rapidly, especially after his move to the more cosmopolitan Litchfield. Jurors <laughs> there in Litchfield, you may not have thought of your from place where? as cosmopolitan. Where anyway, Beecher's abilities to galvanize like-minded Christians in coordinated efforts to redeem society and address the church's mission drew attention to him equally as much. As early as 1806... Beecher called from the pulpit for an end to the social problem of dueling. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, Burr had uh, recently yeah, 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 killed right, Hamilton. Right, right. Right. You know, um, in Kentucky, if you join but, the Bar Association, you have to swear that you've never been involved in a duel? Well, I'm sorry you're not going to be able to be a lawyer, Greg. By 1811, <laughs> by 1811, Beecher had begun work on the creation of a Connecticut Bible Society. The following year, he coordinated, he cooperated in an endeavor that resulted in the American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions, the first national voluntary society to send American missionaries overseas. The same year, he presented a plan to the General Association of Connecticut to combat intemperance and the use of alcoholic beverages. 
This plan eventually generated, so I just want to make it clear, temperance movements came from paedo-baptists. This plan eventually generated the formation of a National American Temperance Society whose mission and methods closely paralleled Beecher's early proposal. These and other voluntary associations like the Domestic Home Missionary Society of Connecticut or the Society for the Suppression of Vice and Promotion of Good Morals would feed would feel Beecher's guiding hand in their creation, and as in the case of the American Sunday School Union, they would depend on Beecher to fuel the fires of their original visions through his sermons during their annual meetings. Is Beecher a good model for pastors and all this? Well, yeah, I, I don't know who who came up with the phrase, but but right at the beginning of that long quotation, redeem society, address the church. Redeem society. And now, I don't know the if they mission. mean for that to be two different things, but I think they are. In fact, they they would be two different things, and one of them is. I mean, redeeming society, I, you know, that's a problematic phrase, I think, in itself. So. It, it does point out how this book and this conversation we're having is swimming upstream yeah. with much of American evangelicalism, which has a very strong activist streak, and not just individual Christians, which we would all agree with Christians, ought to address social problems, ought to organ, but uh, churches as entities and organizations also doing so. And there's a spotted record of good and not so good as a result of that. But I don't think that's our model. One significant book in this conversation that we've mentioned earlier was Chris Wright's The Mission of God. Uh, I would commend those of you who are listening to look at Mike Gilbert Smith's excellent review of Chris Wright's book. You can find it on the Nine Marks website. One of the interesting things uh, he says in that volume later on is that human beings are valuable based, quote, in fact, in the fact that we are part of the whole creation that God already values and declares to be good. End of quote. Any comment about that? I, I kind of, I, I kind of hope I'm misunderstanding what what Chris means by that because it sounds like what he's saying is that human beings are. Well, gosh, I'm just going to end up quoting him. That human beings find their value merely because they are part of the creation that God already As opposed values. Opposed to reflecting the Creator's yeah, image. I, I know. So that, I don't that's... see how I could be misunderstanding him, but I. Wouldn't Peter Gentry have a very different take on God's image and Adam and Eve's creation and its significance? Well, sure. Adam and Eve would be the, the pinnacle of God's creation. They have a value that is intrinsic to themselves because it's, they it's are more, made in God's image. It's more the fact that we reflect God's image is what gives value right. to the creation. That's right. And you right. see that you see that in a couple of ways. You see, you see human primacy both in the fall and in redemption. So when God curses, when God hands down the curses, the, the ground the is cursed... Because of what Adam has done. Yeah. And then in Romans chapter 8... And it will have an effect on Adam. In Romans see. chapter 8, the cosmos merely shares in the redemption yeah. that is given yeah, that, to human that's, beings. It's, this is a really key point, because I think what... Sometimes when people want to go to the, the gospel of the air, so to speak, and uh, in the air, that you know all of creation is being redeemed, what they then think is, well, God's going to renew the whole creation. I'm a part of the whole creation, and I'm going to be redeemed too. When that's not the way that mm-hmm. the Bible functions. At the beginning, you see that the, the storyline is not so much, well, the whole world is broken down and then we need to fix it. The, the basic storyline is how do an unholy people live with a holy God? Mm-hmm. And then when you get to Romans 8, which is absolutely pivotal, you see that it's the whole creation is swept along with the sons of man who are redeemed and glorified. So it's, it's quite the opposite. It's not, well, people will be saved because God's renewing the whole world. No, it's God saved people. Therefore, the whole creation is yearning for that same glory. Yeah. And, and we as individuals, we who have been redeemed, I mean, we want to have hearts of compassion for all people because they're made in God's image. image. Absolutely. Right. And as Christians, then, especially we want to do that. Absolutely. Because we have known such undeserved generosity from God. Yep. And I mean, I mean one of the things I love about being a pastor is it is such a privilege to be able to have my time set aside to actually be of service to others. Mm-hmm. You know, it is it is a joy to reflect something of God's own character Amen. in this. Amen. You know, I mean, including the, these things we're talking about, his concern for justice, as we reflect the sacrificial love of Christ. So, so in this sense, ministries of compassion and justice, which provide to people what they can't provide for themselves, they are wonderful, could we say, signs of the gospel, of Christ giving himself for us? Yeah, a reflection If of, we interpret them with our you, words. If we interpret them with yeah. words, sure. Yeah. Okay, so is the mission of the church to instruct Christians that they are to love others? Yeah, so that, that's, part, yes. yeah that's part of making disciples. Yep. Anything wrong with using the language of doing the gospel? Uh, 
I, I, I think it's confusing. I mean, gospel means message, right? You, you angelion, angelion is message. You is good, good message. It's a, it's a message. So you can't simply, you know, I'm you can't one, do the gospel. I have one friend who's an African pastor who uh, looked at the book and responded in part by saying, I don't think local churches have a right, biblically speaking, to spend resources on things which are not positively commanded or modeled in the New Testament. Thoughts on that? I don't think they have a right. Yeah, he emphasized that word. (laughs) He'd read your manuscript. Yeah. And this was part of his response. Yeah, I think I got an email from from the fellow. I think you did. Yeah. So so your church wouldn't wouldn't support a medical missionary? It's not my church. It's this guy. But this, that's um, what, is that... I, I don't know if, if he would mean that or not. Because if by missionary you mean he's spreading the gospel, I think he'd be fine he with that. Yeah. Wouldn't yeah, give I, money just to Katrina relief. I, See, I, I would push back and say that, that everything the church... The, the way I answered the, the, the friend was that there, there is certainly a golden mission that the Lord has given the church, and everything the church does needs to be in service to that mission, more or less directly. Uh, the more the the less direct that support of that golden mission gets, the more uh, uh, the more you shy away from it, and the more bias there is against doing it. But it doesn't mean you never end up doing those things. But everything the church does has to be in service to that golden. So mission. So you just blasted the regular principle out of the water. I mean, so you, you can really do whatever you want. I don't think so. Well, you certainly don't have to have positive warrant in scripture to do it. From what, the way you just answered. Well, I, I mean, if you if you get into those budget those, different than your worship service, you've got an and element, the and you have the regulative principle. You have an element, and you have forms of that element. If you want to get into that that kind of language, and which, the element kind of you're dissolves, exhorting pastors here is the mission, and the mission is the mission is is proclaim the gospel and make disciples. But there are various ways of of doing that, and and so preach the gospel. Yes. Display the gospel. Uh. uh yes. Yes, Model but, the gospel? Yes. Express the gospel? Yes. Or John Dixon we, says, proclaim and promote. Mm-hmm. But I mean, that, that means that as pastors, we have a great deal of liberty about how that's done. Because it's not just a... If well, we're going to use all those verbs, then it is certainly not just a verbal proclamation. Well, when you say a great deal of liberty, I think a lot of people are going to hear that and think you have absolute liberty. That you're free to do pretty much anything. I, I don't think that's the case. I think you have... Uh, like I said, I think you have a I think you have a golden mission. Everything needs to be in service of that. Things that are directly in service to that mission uh, should be your they should be your first looks, so to speak, as you're budgeting time and resources. Would you agree that in obedience to that call to preach the good news, that call that call particularly, that in obedience to that, Christian congregations have both the liberty and the responsibility to prudently take initiatives in our community as opportunities arise. Galatians six ten perhaps collectively in the name of the local congregation, just as certainly as individuals do? Uh, I, I wouldn't quite put it like that, no. Kevin? Uh, if, if you have the Galatians 6.10 as you have opportunity, I mean, think about if, if your church is, you know, in the Katrina flood zone sure. and everyone's wiped away. The opportunity has arisen. Yeah, has arisen. And can, can we use your church? Can we, you know, have people come in here and spend the night and give food and, I hope every pastor and congregation would say, yeah. absolutely, we'll, we'll mobilize our people, we'll do whatever we can. Now, hopefully your people are having conversations and they're trying to bear witness to Christ, but that'd be an opportunity. It, it's right there. I think you're unfaithful if you just aren't dealing with the things that are I around you. We just have a few minutes left. Uh, just some quick definitions that might be helpful for guys to understand. Sphere sovereignty. We don't talk about it in the book. You know, it comes from Abraham Kuyper's thinking that there's certain areas in which you have, or you know, there's certain sovereignty in, in the area of education, or in the area of law or medicine. And um, you know, I, I think it's it's okay. But in, in general, we're each sort in, of each institution should should stay yeah. within its sphere of, right. of uh, competence. And is that what you guys are advocating? Uh, wouldn't really get into I it. Think so, moral proximity. Yeah, I, I think that's a, a helpful term, which basically means that the same moral obligation, in particular, thinking about the poor, or the needy, uh, depends on a number of different factors. Um, 
geographical closeness, spiritual closeness. Now, there's a way that you could be really loose with that so you feel like nobody has any claim to your obligation. But I think what we're trying to avoid with that term is a sort of emotional heart appeal that, look, there there's a child in Africa who's starving, and if someone a child was left on your doorstep this morning, wouldn't wouldn't you pick him up? Yeah. Well, or if your if your child was drowning in a pool, wouldn't you save him? Well, th- there's a moral proximity, there's an obligation that's ethically greater given different circumstances. It's a way of trying to think think carefully about the as you have opportunity phrase. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, it's a small world. We we have opportunity. You see yeah. you see World Vision commercials well, on television. People just flatten it so that. Every need has the same moral obligation. Oh, you wouldn't heart. let your own child drown. How could you let another child starve half a world away? Two well, kingdoms. Two kingdoms. It's an, it, two kingdoms is an, is an old theological concept of, of uh, uh, a kingdom that is uh, a sphere of sovereignty, so to speak, that, that God has over all of creation and then a special sphere within the, within the church that is so redemptive. So that Christ rules over spiritual kingdom and a civil kingdom in different ways, yeah. and there's... Uh, he, he's sovereign over both of them, and he's lord over both of them, but the, the way that he rules them is That's different, right. and we should not expect the kingdom of this world to be the kingdom of and Christ. And Christians live in both and have to, have to uh, deal with Sounds their like obligations you guys are this. in both. In broad strokes, I would, yeah. I would affirm it. Um, it's certainly appropriate in our public services as Christians to pray for those in authority. Uh, a lot of evangelicals do not do this, but yeah, First Timothy 2. Yep. I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. What about the historical differences in the way the Dutch Reformed Church has related to the state as opposed to the way Baptist churches have? I'm surprised that doesn't cause any variation in you guys. What are you thinking of just the more of a well, state church model? Yeah, do your different polities reflect... Uh, differences in your understanding at all? Or doesn't. I mean, the RCA was always uh, a little quicker to Americanize. and. But the RCA, if you take it back to the Netherlands, it was the established church. Yeah. And certainly it had responsibilities and took responsibilities that you now, Kevin DeYoung, an RCA minister, would deny are appropriate for a church to take. Yeah. I, I would say that the, the bigger influence, though, has been through... Abraham Kuyper, and really I think Neo-Kuyperianism even more than Kuyper directly, with a sort of redeem all of creation, which was very much a, a, a part of the Dutch Reformed tradition, if, if but I haven't a, If we go to a Baptist congregation in the Netherlands in 1700, they're not going to really say anything about a war the state is carrying on, whereas the Dutch Reformed minister is going to need to say something. If it's the year 2011 and the American government involves us in a war... Do you guys have any differences in, in the way you understand the local church pastor has a responsibility to address that? Uh, probably not. I don't think so. Do you, I, I don't know. Greg, I don't do, know. do you have a responsibility to say anything as a pastor of a local church when our government involves us in a war? Uh, if I'm preaching on a certain passage that, that deals with principles of war, for instance, uh, uh, maybe, because I'm, I'm, speaking to, I'm speaking to Christians who uh, have as part of their obligation that God has given them a, a responsibility to be good citizens, uh, to vote, to affect public policy. But I'm only going to do that when it shows up in, in Scripture itself. I'm, I'm not going to make a... And I'm going to do it on a, you might pray. On a principled level. I, I would pray for it. But sure. what if you're not... You don't have to be in that passage of Scripture, but you're in those times. And, and there's a, a war. Is that an appropriate thing for a Christian pastor not to comment on? I think it's appropriate, depending on the circumstances, that you would or that you wouldn't. Okay. Yeah, but you, you don't do that as a you don't do that as a sort of second tier politician. You you do that you do that your your authority as a pastor doesn't come because you're a leader of men and women. Your authority as a pastor comes from the fact that you stand on scripture. Mark, so you when, say nothing apart from after nine eleven. Did you change what sermon you were going to preach on for the next Sunday? No, but I did make a special pastoral statement. Yeah, and you've also done that with you did that for a law, uh, the euthanasia law in in Oregon. Oregon. I did, and but you I did. did it. You did it not just your own political opinions. You okay. did it from principles in Scripture. Yeah, and that's the only way I think you. And you shouldn't go beyond what Scripture says when you're doing yeah. that. I have a lot more to ask, but we have uh, some friends here who've been waiting very patiently throughout all this, guys. It makes me want to get you back for another conversation because, uh, yeah. 
thank you so much for this. Jonathan Worsley, do you have a, a question you would like to put to our um, our friends here? You mentioned it already a little bit, but in the Gospels we often um, are left wondering who uh, God's people are. Is it the Israelites or is it the followers of Christ? How does that shape who we primarily see as our neighbors? Is that non-Christians who live next door or is that Christians who live around the world? I mean, I, I think you see in the Gospels a reconstituting of what it means to be the people of God as Jesus is seeing himself as replacing the temple, replacing the Torah, so that now God's people are those who follow Christ. So I think God's people are Christians. Uh, so that, that certainly does have uh, a bearing on how we do ministry and to whom we do ministry. And it goes back to the Galatians passage. I think there's a priority to God's people that that spiritual kinship even supersedes some other forms of relationship. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, the Gospels are a roiling, boiling time in redemptive history, right? Things are changing. It's the, it's the movement of, a, of, of the age. Um, and so you really don't get to the point where you can kind of take a snapshot of it until after Pentecost, I think. And, okay, this is where we are for the next 3,000 years. Right. But we should also add the Luke 10, the Good Samaritan, that when they, when the man asked Jesus, who, who is my neighbor? He's much more interested in saying, what does it mean for you to be a neighbor? Uh-huh. Here's how you love people as you need arises. Thanks, guys. Shine. Uh, earlier you spoke about um, our relationship to the kingdom and the different words that are used in connection with the kingdom. Are, just for clarification, are you saying that every Sunday when the offering is given and the pastor prays that this would be for the extension of God's kingdom, that that's not accurate? I would say it's not accurate. Yeah, I think I would too, technically. Better language to use? So, well, uh, that the, the, for the, uh, for the, the proclamation of the gospel. Spread of the gospel. For the, yeah. the growth I mean, the only of his sense, church. Again, we're, church. Kind of in, we're kind of in unbiblical, non-biblical language anyway, but I think you could, you, the only way you could kind of say the kingdom expands is when another knee bows to the, to the king. That, I think you can talk about it like that. But, again, but even then I wouldn't. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's the rule. It's not the realm. Yeah. Guys, I think we're about out of time. I think this better be our, our last question. Jonathan Lehman. Kevin, you said your book in many ways is swimming upstream. If, if I were to try to say what the stream, evangelical stream is sympathetically, I would say it's a renewal movement. A lot of pastors are looking at nominal Christians, civic religion. They're saying, have this kind of Leslie Newbigin impulse of, hey, people are just showing up on Sunday and that's it. And they're trying to respond yeah. to that. Would you say that's a wrong prescription of the culture? Or would you say that's a right prescri- a right, you know, diagnosis of the culture, but a wrong prescription? How would you guys set yourself in response to that? First, I'd say it. it I mean, you know, different places in this country and around the world are so different that there are some places where, yeah, what you're dealing with is a sort of nominalism. So I certainly think it's helpful that we realize uh, there are people that need to be evangelized that don't know Christ. There are people in our churches who are unregenerate, who need to hear the gospel and be brought to Christ. Uh, Where I I push back is in equating all of that with we're missionaries. I I want to leave that term for those being sent out to go. And and part of it is I've seen concretely where churches say, yep, we're we're all missionaries, and they flatten it out. Everything is mission, everything we're doing. And they divest themselves of any sort of resources or people to those who have never heard because they say, well, we're all missionaries and we need it here in Grand Rapids, Michigan, where there's a church on every corner as much as they need it in some place with no gospel witness at all. That that's a mistake. Yeah, I agree. I, I, you know, I, uh, in terms of diagnosing the problem, I think sometimes that language uh, of diagnosis is, is overdone. So I think uh, I think maybe the problem in the past hasn't been as bad as sometimes the rhetoric makes it out to be. I think Christians have have been for a long time people of compassion and and good hearts. So I think that's overdone sometimes. You, you do a good job with that, and why we love the church at one point, Kevin. Ryan Townsend. This is a practical question for the individual Christian who's a member of a healthy evangelical church. Given the golden mission that you, we've discussed here, how should the individual Christian view the church in helping him practically? implement and follow some of the commands that scripture gives to the individual Christian that we've talked about, about extending mercy. So how does the church 
what's the church's role in his individual call to, to, to show this mercy? Uh, I mean, the things that churches do, you, you, you preach, you shepherd, you hold one another accountable. Uh, and there may be, you know, certain churches and situations where they do more or less to help someone. But I think it's where we need to allow that Christians will have different callings and it it gets difficult. You know, some people say, well, the, the church used to do so much for the arts or why, why doesn't the church support, you know, isn't making movies, uh, can't that be a calling? Well, it can be a calling, but so can being a plumber or a bus driver. And does the church get into plumbing ministry? So I think the, the church helps with the ordinary means of grace. Um, I got to ask one more after a couple of comments you guys have made. Second Peter 3, 7. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Is that fire going to annihilate creation or refine and remake it? Oh, I, I think ultimately it's going gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna to refine and remake it. Uh, I think Paul makes that clear in Romans 8, that, that what we're waiting for is the, uh, is the renewal of, of the earth. But, but I think that there is language all over Scripture, whether it's from Second Peter uh, or, or other places, that the world will, for example, pass away. You know, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will will stand forever. Uh, so, so there's gonna be. I mean, could you talk about it as a, a death experience for creation, analogous to our own? That well, the discontinuity, the discontinuity is stressed by the fact that the heavenly city in Revelation comes down, right? You know, from above, it's not built up. It's That's not right. Constructed That's right. from the ground, ground up like the Tower of Babel, or from the ruins of ba- Babylon. Right. You know, Babylon gets destroyed. I and think then, the previous verse there in Second Peter 3, 5, and 6 is really instructive because verse 7 says, by the same word, and he's referencing the flood. And he says that the world was deluged with water and perished. The world perished in the flood. Was it obliterated like the Death Star in Star Wars? No. That's a really cool scene, though. Yeah. Uh, but they rebuilt the Death Star. So in the same way, the fire is going to... There's going to be a lot of discontinuity, but I don't think it's atoms it's blowing apart into space. So it's, it's really significant. And, and Greg, I guess you were saying this earlier with your your, your kingdom stuff, um, that the heavenly city is not built by us. It, it, it is as one-sided in the Bible as creation, as the yeah. exodus, the incarnation, the cross, the resurrection, the regeneration of the individual yes. heart. That's right. It's God's work. Yeah, I it's think a, that, it's a great salvation act of God. Yeah, I think people have the idea wrongly that what's going to happen is that that. Uh, human society, human culture, the city of man is headed downward, and it's our job as the church to sort of pull it up. Turn like it a, around. Like, well, pull it like an airplane that's about to crash, and if we just pull hard enough, we can get the thing flying again. Well, I don't think that's at all the, the way Scripture talks about it. Human culture, the city of man, represented by Babylon, crashes in Revelation 18, and then the heavenly city comes down. Well, look at verse heaven. 13, but according to his promise, we... Second Peter 3. Yeah, Second Peter three thirteen. According to His promise, now some people would think, according to His promise, we are working with God as co-creators, as restorers. Peter says, according to His promise, we are waiting. Mm-hmm. We are waiting. That doesn't mean we're we're quietists who don't care about this. We've talked all about that. But in terms of the new heavens and the new earth, we're waiting. That's right. Our role is God promised. We wait for it. And that, by the way, that idea of waiting shows up every single time the phrase "new heavens and new earth" is used in the Bible. Mm. Every time that idea is there. One author has written, we note, we notice right away how drastically different this is from all those would-be Christian scenarios in which the end of the story is the Christian going off to heaven as a soul, naked and unadorned, to meet its maker in fear and trembling. As in Philippians 3, it is not we who go to heaven, it is heaven that comes to earth. Indeed, it is the church itself, the heavenly Jerusalem, that comes down to earth. This is the ultimate rejection of all types of Gnosticism, of every worldview that sees the final goal as the separation of the world from God and of the physical from the spiritual of earth from heaven. It is the final answer to the Lord's Prayer that God's kingdom will come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It is what Paul is talking about in Ephesians 1.10, that God's design and promise was to sum up all things in Christ, things both in heaven and on earth. It is the final fulfillment and richly symbolic imagery of the promise of Genesis 1, that the creation of male and female would together reflect God's image of the world. And it is the final accomplishment of God's great design to defeat and abolish death forever, which can only mean the rescue of creation from its present plight of decay. Heaven and earth, it seems, are not, after all, poles apart, needing to be separated forever when all the children of heaven have been rescued from this wicked earth. 
Yeah, well, to most of that, amen and praise God. You know, I mean, I think he's got the little phrase in there. It's not that we go to heaven. Well, in fact, we do go to heaven. That's just not the last thing that happens. Um, and, and Paul talks in... 2 Corinthians 5, about being away from... Away from the, the body. Yeah, away from the tent of the body. So, yes, that is the final consummation. We need to be reminded of it. Yeah. But when you do a funeral, you say, she's in heaven. Yeah. She went to heaven. And that's right. Yeah. And, you know, I, I mean, and he doesn't exactly, whoever you're reading from there doesn't exactly say it, but the transition to eternity is... Mark will not tell us. Uh, yeah, we he, won't, he won't give us the book. <laughs> it, it's, it's not going to be a smooth transition to eternity. It will be a, a bumpy, discontinuous transition to eternity. For the cosmos. Once you yes. die, it's pretty smooth. Though you, you have to go through death. That's well, not yeah, smooth. I mean, once you... yeah. Well, gentlemen, we could keep this conversation going forever, but you have been very patient. Thank you so much for giving us your time. Pray the Lord bless the ministry of this book and pray that churches uh, be about the mission that we've been given in God's word. Amen. Thanks, Mark. Thank you, guys. Thank you, friends, for listening to this Nine Marks audio message. We encourage you to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more audio messages and other free resources, we invite you to visit us online at www.ninemarks.org or call us toll-free at 1-888-543-1030. Nine Marks exists to equip church leaders with a biblical vision and practical resources for displaying God's glory to the nations through healthy churches.